most people operate from an outside-in perspective. They're taking a look at their results that they're getting, and they think that there's something habitual or behavioral that needs to change. And that might be the case in some cases, but most of the time, the real friction is happening at an unconscious or, or at a mindset level. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? What we do in life echoes in eternity. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Hey there, welcome back to the Better Podcast with Dr. Stephanie. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I sat down to speak to one of my dear friends who is really making incredible changes in the way that we think about mental performance for high achievers, whether that is an athlete, whether that's an actor, whether that's somebody, anybody who really wants to be competing at the top of their game. I sat down to talk with Todd Herman, and we discussed his book, The Alter Ego Effect. Now, one of the things about Todd that everybody really knows him for is that he has really achieved mastery in this field. So he's clocked over 15,000 hours on the field of play, working one-on-one with people from all sorts of backgrounds. Like I was saying, whether you are an actor, you are someone who is training for the Olympics and everything in between. He is a mental performance coach and he provides these mindset strategies and systems that really do help you unlock your and self-actualize your potential. We talk a lot in this episode about his own story, so his origin story in terms of how he came to be this mindset coach and to be as well-regarded as a mental game strategist, how he fell into that. So we talk a lot about some of the trauma that he's endured as a child and how he was able to get over that. And then we got into his body of work, the alter ego effect. And I have to say, I've known Todd for a long time. He always has something incredibly intelligent to say. I feel like I'm always learning from him, which is just the best kind of friend to have when you have people who you respect and you admire. And when you are you know, listening to them talk in their field of genius, you are just in awe of uh, their power and how far they've come and what they have contributed to the world. And that's how I feel about Todd. So we talked about what an alter ego is. And we all, he talks about how we all have alter egos within us. It's just our job to really unlock that. What happens when we're growing up, when traumatic things happen, this can be anything from physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, and how that lives in our nervous system. Uh, We talked about why we trip up and get into our own way, even when we know what the right thing is to do. We talked about some of the hidden forces that really are important in the idea of self-sabotage. So we talk about imposter syndrome, we talk about tribal narratives, cultural narratives, we talk about trauma, and we distinguish between the question who you are and what you are, which I think was a really incredible. There's so much thought that Todd has put into his body of work. So I love this question, what are you versus who are you? And how we can take on our alter egos to just suspend the, the, the disbelief that you have about yourself and your capability for that period of time in order to GSD, in order to get stuff or the other word done. We talked all about those things. We got into the idea of going from unconsciously incompetent, conscious incompetence, 
to consciously competent and unconscious competence and talked about some of his favorite, um, you know, who the real uh, alter, alter ego is. Is it Superman? Is it Clark Kent? And some of his famous, uh, some of his favorite alter egos as well. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I had in preparing for it. I went all out. I went with my nerd hat on and, uh, you know, you'll notice he, uh, at one point in the interview says, yes, yeah, Steph, you, you've gotten all the lingo. Like I have adopted all of his lingo, the field of play, moments of impact, you know, the alter ego, suspending the disbelief. I really enjoyed nerding out on his body of work and discussing it with him. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Todd Herman. Todd, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. Stephanie, a pleasure as always. Um, I will take the back seat to the good-looking tribe that's on this podcast. On this <laughs> <one>. <laughs> uh, you know, every time we get together, I, I feel like I'm always learning something new for you. When you were in Toronto last, we went for dinner, and I feel like the lessons that you that you teach are always delivered through this through line of like this dry, sarcastic, really witty humor, which is something I really love and admire about you. Yeah, I don't know if it's the farm kid in me. I don't know if it's my quantity of years in, in uh, sports locker rooms where everyone is sort of coming at each other, but it's uh, it's funny because it's actually not a big part of the personality trait that comes out with sort of maybe the personality that people know me as in business, but when you're interacting with me one-on-one, -on -one, that's, I mean, it's a huge part of the way that I show up. So anyway, yeah, I love, I love fun. it. Love it. Fun. So for those of us, uh, those of us listening to the podcast that are maybe not familiar with where you come from, you mentioned your farming story, like, you know, yeah. coming from a farming community. Let's talk about your origin story. You know, you came from this farming community and now you're one of the most, you know, sought after performance coaches and mental strategists in, in New York. Let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah. So origin, I grew up on a big farm and ranch outside of uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and uh, come from like a, a rodeo family and uh, grew up kind of in the, truly in the middle of nowhere. Our, our nearest neighbor was two miles or three kilometers away from where we were at, Thank which was a translation, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, now that I live here in New York city, I'm constantly, you know, doing conversions between Fahrenheit and Celsius and miles and kilometers <laughs> for people all the time. Yeah, yeah. My brain just flips pretty quick on that. But uh, yeah, it was a bit of a challenge, I think, growing up because I, I'm a huge extrovert. Like I love being around people. And I think we know a lot of people that they have these big personalities maybe on stages or they're really good speakers, but they're actually huge introverts. Or mm -hmm. we know a lot of people who've got their entrepreneurs and business owners and they are big introverts, whereas I am truly massive extroverts. So growing up on a, on a farm in the you know, middle of nowhere, it was, uh, it was a challenge because I just wanted to be around as many people as I possibly could. Two older brothers and uh, a younger sister, so can come from a pretty good sized family, and, but always had this big aspiration of traveling the world and you know, I, was, I could take you to the exact spot on our family's farm where I was when I was eight years old, out for a walk by myself and uh, with my horse Cracker Jack and knew that I wanted to live in New York City someday. And so, you know, I've been here now for 13 years, but my, the world of sport and then business has taken me all over the, all over the globe and settled finally in New York. And how did you get into uh, coaching with, you know, elite, I mean, you're kind of well known for your uh, coaching with elite athletes and yeah. entrepreneurs and celebrities and stuff. How did that uh, come about for you? 
Oh, well, it wasn't deliberate. I was, I, I think every, a lot of people who know like the hero's journey stories knows that, know that there's, there's the heroes that kind of chose their path and there's the accidental heroes yep. thing. And I'm definitely an accidental entrepreneur and accidental coach in some ways, because it wasn't the path that I ever thought that I would go and pursue. My big pursuit was I wanted to play in the NFL and, uh, you know, I played college football, got scholarships and all that, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't good enough to go. I mean, I was a good athlete, but I wasn't good enough to go play pro. And when I got done playing, my I'll never. My brother is one of the best coaches there ever is in sport. And if he wasn't um, also a passionate farmer who went back and took over the family farm, he would be. I have no doubt he would be a professional coach right now. But when he got done playing football and I was done playing football, we had this conversation around. Okay, we've had these, you know, great little careers for ourselves. Now let's go and get other kids really excited about sport as well. And so he had his path and I went and started volunteering at a high school, coaching the defensive backs, Bev Facey High School in Shore Park, shout out there, and uh, to help a friend out. And I started talking to the kids because I was never a physically gifted person. I'm not like 6'4 and 245 pounds, but my mental game was my strength. And I played way bigger than I should have kind of on the field. And which we'll kind of maybe talk about later, like how I did that. And, and I start talking to these youngsters because they were, you know, thinking about like practicing more and doing more cone drills and doing more sprints. And I'm like, listen, that's not your issue. Your issue isn't that you need to do more physical work. Your issue is you need to do more mental work. You need to prepare better. You need to have better routines. You need to set some goals so you can actually, you know, develop your confidence and see the growth that you've got and, and milestone the stuff out. So I started kind of helping them with, with those tips that started to get them really good results, word spread. And I was, I was always fascinated with the mental game and I was studying it since I was about 15 and it had allowed me to develop this process to get and find the zone state for myself. Mm -hmm. And so when I played, I consistently played in the zone state and flow state. And I was just so, sort of unpacking and teaching other people how to do it because it's actually just biological. Like if you do certain things in a row in a sequence, you're, the likelihood of you getting into that flow state is just massively increased. And there's some mindset stuff there. And then there's just some like physical you know, actions that you can take to help activate it. And so other good coaches in the Edmonton area where I was living at the time started asking me to come out and talk to their uh, sports teams. And then parents started asking me, Hey, can you mentor my son or daughter? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. And I was just going to do it for free because I just love talking to young kids about it. Yeah. And uh, they started saying, well, how much would you charge? And I would be like, uh, $75 for three sessions. And that's where right. I started. And that's actually my price that I was for three years from 97 to 2000. I charged $75 and those were in-home sessions as well. Wow. I'll never forget looking at my, cause I used Quicken as my way of like calculating my tax and how much my profit was and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll never forget looking at it and saying that my profitability was, um, I was making $8 and about 56 cents an hour when it was all told, but wow. You know, that's what it was. And I was, I was busy all the time. I was doing what I, was lo what I loved. I was young though. And uh, it gave me a lot of reps and it prepared me for then working with the, the pros that I ended up working with. Right. And when, yeah. you know, is there, maybe you can speak to some of the, you know, when you're talking about this mental game and you're trying to, you know, bring out the best performance in the athletes that you were coaching, yeah. was there, uh, I've heard you refer to this as an emergency break. Was there like an emergency break, so to speak, uh, that you were able to release in terms of uh, enabling their performance and their execution of what they were supposed to be doing? Yeah, 
you know, because mindset is really about attitude. It's about philosophy. And you've got performance that whether if you if you put a positive mindset on some action that you're taking or something you need to do, you're going to dramatically change a, a result. And so most people operate from an outside-in perspective. They're taking a look at their results that they're getting, and they think that there's something habitual or behavioral that needs to change. And that might be the case in some cases, but most of the time, the real friction is happening at an unconscious or, or at a mindset level. And so I talk about how it's like the invisible emergency break. You know, all of a sudden, just one day with just the, a quick paradigm shift or a quick tweak in the way that you're looking at something or perceiving something, approaching something, the performance that's already nested inside of you comes flowing out of you. It was already there. And that's actually... That's a core skill set, a core tenant, a core paradigm that really great coaches, mentors, advisors have as a lens that they look at the people that they're working with through, which is if you're looking at trying to fix someone, that's not the most powerful way that you can look at another individual. I also think it's a broken way of looking at someone. I look at someone as you've got everything that you need right now. Like all of the capability is sitting inside of you. It's simply masked or it's being suppressed by some emergency break lever that if we find it and we release it now, you get to see what you're truly capable of. And yeah. it was already there. So the results change. I mean, I've, I've had, I remember starting out and this one young kid, Justin, that I was working with, he was a goalie. And I've, I started kind of focusing on hockey because in Canada, hockey's a religion, obviously. There's a lot yep. of people playing hockey. It mm -hmm. costs a lot of money to play hockey. So it's a sport that sort of attracts people who've got, obviously, the financial wherewithal to you know, yeah. also pay for a mental game coach for their kids. And I'll never, never forget, I worked with Justin on a Wednesday. Saturday, he was going off to Las Vegas for a university kind of tryout camp where all the scouts were coming in from all these universities. And he was a goalie. And I remember his dad calling me on about noon that day after the first night and then morning scrimmage that had happened. And he said, you know, what did you, what did you do to Justin? Like, and I said, Oh, what are you talking about? And he's like, no, what did you talk to Justin about? And I was like, and for me, I'm always mindful of never ask a question when you don't have full clarity. And I was like, well, cause I was like, did I ruin this kid kind of thing? And, uh, and he was like, I've never seen him play this way. Like it's, it's, he's a different, he looks different out there. And, and I said, well, that's kind of between, you know, Justin and myself, but you can ask him. And that's the great thing was, and he was a shorter kid where in the game of hockey at that time, it was sort of lending itself to bigger players because the game started being played on the knees. And he was using that as a, as an excuse for himself that I'm too small and da, 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 da. Anyway, when I got to him to see himself in a different way, change kind of that identity of what he was on the ice all of his skills that he had practiced for hours and hours and days and days and days over the years came flowing out of him um, and ended up getting a full ride scholarship to uh, a huge university out here in the Northeast, you know, especially for young kids. I still love seeing it with like people who are 50, 60 as well when they get that paradigm shift. Yeah. But, and I want to, I'm going to, we're going to dive into what that paradigm shift is in just a moment. And I want to get your definition because the work that you've done in this book is profound. And I think it's one of the best books out there in terms of mental strategy and, mm -hmm. and performance. Are there, I'll segue this by drawing on your experience in terms of, you know, common in your experience, do you think that there's any common through lines or common patterns in terms of what was causing that 
self-imposed, you know, emergency break. And then, you know, potentially we can, uh, and we can parallel this maybe with your, uh, with your story as well. And how this was useful for you. Well, I mean, to kind of go back to one of your original questions around mindset, like sort of why I actually got into diving in between the six inches of the ears of other people, but then really more so myself was just out of a necessity growing. I mean, I've got an amazing family, grew up in a I was a lucky kid who got two amazing parents and great siblings and had an amazing environment to grow up in. You know, the extrovert in me, you know, feeling like I could be a little bit trapped on the farm. Anytime summer rolled around, I wanted to go to any church camp or camp that was happening. So if there was a a Catholic camp on one weekend, I'd be a Catholic. If there was a Baptist camp, I'd be a Baptist the next. I just didn't care. I just wanted to go and um, see other people, be around other people during the summertime. And uh, one camp that I went to when I was 12, uh, unfortunately, over the course of a couple of days, I was singled out by a couple of men and I was uh, sexually assaulted and raped over those uh, two days. And as someone who had never been around anything that was like that and never had any experience that was even remotely close to that, obviously, it was a traumatic experience. And when those things happen, you have just a tremendous amount of shame and guilt and you know, all emotions that you don't deserve and they're not yours to have. But, you know, you're, I was a little kid. And uh, so when I came back from that, and I don't need to get into the details, but it was pretty brutal. But when I came back from that, I'll never forget getting out of the, the car from friends that had driven me back to our farm. And I took my duffel bag out and dropped it at the front door. And we had just put a pool into our backyard on the farm and uh, changed into my bathing suit in the garage where we had a little changing area and then jumped in the pool and proceeded to try to drown myself because I didn't want my family or anyone else to know about it. Right. And uh, sort of, obviously it didn't work. And, uh, but that sort of created this domino effect of a lot of struggle with like suicide over my youth and in my 20s as well. But I would just try to disassociate myself from the experience that I was having, and I would start to play with my imagination and step into kind of different identities and different roles so that I could, you know, because I, I still had this, and this is just sort of the really fascinating part about human beings is, is like, even when extraordinarily difficult things happen to people, and I'm not unique, this happened to many people, all of us have experienced some sort of trauma in some way, but is that the aspiration for and desire to do something great is still there. It's buried for some people. And it was still buried for me underneath this now story I was telling about my own self-worth and you know some not so nice things were said to me during that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to play with these other kind of like roles or identities so that I could disassociate from this Todd that was now wounded or hurt because I still wanted to go out and I still wanted to be I still wanted to pursue my goals of um, sport and, you know, play football. And, you know, I always wanted to be a a speaker or an entrepreneur and and all that. And uh, it allowed me to not sort of stay caught and trapped in this world of not believing that I could go do it based on the largely very negative talk that was going on inside my head. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so like just diving it, I, I read and consumed as many books as I possibly could around trying to figure this stuff out in my head so that I could, you know, still move forward. 
I'll say this, the, the big mistake that I made for a good chunk of my life was not resolving that situation in my own Mm-hmm. Uh, in my own head and not, you know, whether it's seeking out therapy or, or talking to someone about it, because I never shared that with anyone until just a couple of years ago. Yeah. I remember the Facebook post that yeah. you put out on, I think it was New Year's Eve a year ago or now, but I, I can completely relate. I mean, first, I'm so sorry that you had to endure that. Yeah. I think it's one of the most horrifying things to hear, you know, as a mother, as a parent, like that's just your worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. I think the the shame and the guilt and the humiliation and the, you know, the trust issues that you may have with yourself. I think that we just bury that, like we just buried in our nervous system somewhere. And, you know, I, I can relate to it in, in the way that you describe it in terms of like, I never wanted anybody to know about this. And, you know, for me, in, in my case, it wasn't a sexual abuse scenario, but there was physical and emotional abuse. So I would, Um, And I'm sure that this is a through line for you with some of the athletes that you work with, but I would do everything that I could to not feel that shame or that somehow it was my fault that I, and I think as a child, like you're 12, you don't have a frontal lobe yet. Right. So you can't delineate, you can't make the decision that you brought this on. Like, I think the natural thing as a child is to say, well, I was a bad kid or I deserve this, or, you know, I asked for this in some way. Yeah. for me, my strategies around this were, okay, I'm going to just protect my, I'm going to use my brain and I'm just going to punch out A's all day, every day so that I never, so in school, yeah. maybe not necessarily the smartest person in the class, yeah. but I would sit and study so that the, the gap between the smartest person and me, like I could make up for it in terms of the amount of time that I put into my work yeah. because I, I was running away from, you know, these feelings of shame, these feelings of, you know, being stupid or not smart enough or not enough in, in some way. Yeah. So I, I wanted to, I share that with you because I, I want, and I want to just thank you also for your, you know, I think that your story is incredible and it actually makes a lot of sense. You know, when I first learned about this, I was like, this makes a lot of sense in terms of the, the driven person that you are, like your, you know, your intensity and your intelligence let's deconstruct the idea of self-sabotage a little bit because I think that no matter how successful you are, there are hidden forces, there are hidden things like trauma and there are other things that you discuss in the book around, you know, tribal narratives and, you know, imposter syndrome and things like that where, you know, we mess up when the stakes are high, you know, we don't close the sale or we don't make the last minute, you know, home run that ties the game or, or whatever it is. Let's first start with this. Why, why do you think, Todd, that we trip up and sometimes, why do we get in our own way? Uh, oh, there's many reasons for it. Uh, I mean, in the book, I talk about just some of the common forces and then some of the more sinister hidden forces mm-hmm. around what. And again, this isn't based on research. There's, there's, there's a big distinction that I want to make for people. You know, and, and the book that we're talking about is, you know, I wrote the book, The Alter Ego Effect, The Power of Secret Identities to Transform Your Life. And what I discovered... So I used alter egos when I played sport. And then when I got into business, I I used the power of this identity shifting gift that human beings have to get past my own insecurities about how young I looked as a, as a new entrepreneur and, uh, you know, worrying about what other people were thinking of me and all these just traps that can stop us. And then when I started working with better and better caliber athletes, Mm -hmm. there was this 
sort of golden thread that was being weaved amongst the best of the best, which was they would all talk about how they had this other persona, this other identity, this, you know, some would use the word alter ego that they would step out onto the court or the field or the ice with. And I never really caught on to it until a couple of years in when all of a sudden when I was preparing an athlete uh, for the US swim team for the Athens game in 2004, just the way that she verbalized it sort of all of a sudden sparked a whole series of different other conversations that I had in my memory from other athletes. And I was like, wait a second, this is a thing. It's not just me going, Oh, I used an alter ego as well. And, you know, kind of went back to right. my, <laughs> there wasn't like a common like narrative around the word, around the wording. No, yeah. it wasn't. It, it wasn't a big part of the work that I was doing. Yeah. And then, and then I was like, wait a second, this is the thing. This is the thing that is allowing people to really untap all of their capability to get out there so that they can, unshackle themselves from the worry, the concern, the judgment of what other people are thinking of them and truly create this wonderful shield to protect this more sort of childish self that doesn't want to get, you know, bombarded with judgment and criticism. And and we all have that inner child that's there. So, uh, but to your question around what is um, stopping people, the distinction I wanted to make was that this isn't about research. Like I have over 17,000 hours working with people one-on-one. That's mm-hmm. not counting group stuff that I've done or speeches or trainings and workshops. That's truly one-on-one. And that's important to note simply because when you're working with people one-on-one, A, there is a way different level of expectation on me, the coach or the mentor, mm-hmm. because there is no buffer of groupthink. There is no buffer of that I can hide behind where, you know, a few other people raise their hand and said, yeah, it worked for me. And then so now the person who it didn't work for can go, oh, well, I'm just not doing something right. When you're truly working with someone one-on-one, performance matters. Like I need to, uh, based on the way that someone is hiring me, get a result for someone. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very important lens that I think and decision-making tool that people should use when considering who they should be working with. Because people that do research, there's only so much you can ever gain from research. Oh, yeah. Re- yeah. Research is standing on the sidelines and observing, yeah. or it's in a hermetically sealed laboratory. Mm-hmm. No, I'm on the dirty field. Like I'm, I'm out there when the storm is blowing on everybody and there is a, a drastic amount of nuance that's found in people who work with someone one-on-one. I, and, we've had this car. I completely, I am a hundred percent hell yes on this. I think that there's a, there's a difference between a clinician and a researcher. And we've had yeah. this conversation around the application of the information. So you can, like yes. you were saying, everything is controlled and you have yeah. the, the RCTs and the, you know, the placebo double blind, everything. And that's one source of information. It's quite another to put that in the messiness and the yeah. nonlinearity um, of life. And that's really what separates, you know, the research and the, uh, the scientific pursuit of information and the art of the application of it. And that's, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's why even when someone is looking at books to read, a process or a journey fraught with pitfalls would be only reading best-selling books. The reason is because most people who have written best-selling books are not the actual practitioners. They are researchers or they're influencers or they are people who have curated different ideas and brought it together. Whereas the best books where meat and potatoes that satiate the appetite that you have for change are written by the practitioners. And so that's why hunting down those types of books are um, incredibly important. 
So <laughs> it's sort of as, as, as a second. A little bit of a, yeah, that's a, that's a big pet peeve of mine as well, because people will be like, well, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? And it's like, well, I have, you know, for every patient, mm-hmm. you know, every 10 patients that I see, you know, six will adhere to the theory and four won't. <laughs> so you have to nuance things and you have yeah. to figure out what is the variable? What's the confounding variable here that's, pre- that's preventing them from being successful? And, you know, at the end of the day, like humans are complicated as to why something might not work for someone and attitude and personality plays a a big, a big part in, in that. Um, That's why placebos are, you know, it's, that should tell someone why it's difficult to get and replicate the same evidence than someone who goes and does uh, research on something. So going back to your question around the forces that stop people, the hidden and, or the common forces, and we talked about how trauma, trauma is that basically that narrative that we attach to ourselves and, and what an experience that happened to us means now about ourselves and, and who we are or what we are and what we're capable of. So even taking myself as the example, so that experience happened to me. I didn't ask for it or anything like that. Now, but the story that I pulled out of it, the meaning, the, narrative I, around the, it. Yeah. the meaning that I created from it was that, you know, I wasn't worthy that um, for a little bit of time that my family wasn't there for me because in that moment, that's what I wanted. I wanted my dad to come and, you know, uh, save me in those moments Mm. Um, and that I wasn't going to amount to anything and that, you know, if people found out about anything that, that this happened to me, that I would be ostracized and I would be, you know, labeled as something and that that was going to mean that I would perpetuate it's actually one of the one of the most sinister parts of um, sexual abuse is that there is this narrative that's been built now that people that come from sexual abuse are highly likely to be sexual abusers as well that's actually categorically not true in fact they are less likely to be sexual abusers than the average person in society mm-hmm. you know when was sent, when was the last time someone ever talked about that you know, but that's only found under the practitioner research of people who've been doing the work where, you know, I didn't know that, you know, so I was like terrified that I was somehow going to relive that in my older age because these were older men that did this to me. So, right. so trauma is, is one of those places. And, and I found that a lot, cause I'm not a therapist. I don't work with people on therapy. I'm a performance guy, which means that I'm moving people towards milestones, removing any sort of an unshackling you know, paradigms, mindsets, giving them better tool sets that they should be implementing to get the results and not only get the results, but also enjoy the process as well, because mm. that's not talked about that much yeah. in the context of success. So uh, off, if you use, if you put success into a, a formula, typically success means that people judge it by is results divided by time. So it's success equals, did you get the result? And then how long did it take you? So if someone was able to, you know, now there's the like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, the fastest ever person to build a billion dollar business. Okay. So now all of a sudden he's more successful. Okay. But the one thing that's really missing from that entire equation from a performance standpoint is, no, what's the quality of the experience? That's what success is. So it's the quality of your experience while pursuing success. And then you can still keep the results over time. Like, cause I want someone to achieve this, achieve the results. And if they do it in record smashing time, great. But I also want them to be enjoying the process because anyone who works with people at a high level knows that it's a fleeting moment in time. When you stand on top of the podium, there is a huge dopamine and endorphin 
depletion that happens afterwards. That's why a lot of people go into a depressive state. Well, that's because you're pursuing a moment in time that when you get there, you're like, oh, so this is kind of it. Whereas people who really pursue the process, they are undefeatable, undefeatable. And and even in like the world of the Olympics, there's so much in the media that celebrates the person who wins the Olympic medal when really it's the achievement of getting to the Olympics. It's now being an Olympian that is, that, that is truly the, the brass ring for many people. Now Mm -hmm. athletes aren't going to say that on because they need to perpetuate it. But I talked to them after their interviews and I was like, oh, that was a really good soundbite you gave them basically feeds the narrative of society that, you know, it's the gold medal that matters or the, you know, the winning of the thing when you and I both know that that isn't it at all because it's not, it traps people, outcomes trap people. Does it matter where the motivation comes from for that? So if we think about, uh, let me put this a different way. If, if you are motivated to make the Olympics, maybe achieve a gold medal or, you know, whatever the outcome is, but you're dedicated to the process, but the motivation is intrinsically driven versus extrinsically driven, meaning that I am doing this because I want to make sure that I am committed to uh, hyper growth and I'm committed to being the best person that I can through whatever means necessary versus I want to show my ex-boyfriend yeah. what it, does the motivation piece play in there does it matter where the motivation comes from does it matter if it's anger or rage or what, yeah look, can you speak to that a little bit yeah so in the starting point no so there's this uh there's a fairly pervasive thought out there around that you know you need to be doing things for yourself and, and all that stuff is wonderful okay but on while being on the field of play and working with really elite people, I can tell you that there are a lot of people that the source energy that caused them to start their path forward, whether it's entrepreneurship and why they started something or, or athletics was out of maybe was an extrinsic thing. It could have been, or it could be from a negative emotion place like rage and anger. Those are powerful emotions. Everyone's trying to avoid them. And yet the great thing about rage and anger is they are phenomenal focusers of energy. And they're um, charged. Like they're, there's such an emotional charge to it. You can totally, like I yeah. full, full stop. Like, you know, I had gone to uh, uh, Philip McKernan, who I think, you know, he was running yeah. a couple's retreat. And at the end of the retreat, you know, he asked, you know, on a scale of one to 10, you know, one being, you know, low 10 being the, you know, how angry do you think you are? And this was after three days of seeing couples like complain yeah. about each other and they're not seen and they're not heard and all these kind of things. And people were like, oh, you know, I've made peace with it. You know, namaste, you know, this kind of (laughs) stuff. Like I'm a one or a two. And I'm like, I'm a 10. Yeah. I'm a 10. I'm an 11 out of 10. Yeah. Because that for me has been, and we can talk about, you know, how that can potentially maim me in the future. But, you know, going up like for my whole life that has been such what I would ascribe to how I've been so successful is because I have been so dedicated to, you know, Achieving, and that it, I think part of it is my motivation has been because of my past and being so angry yeah. around it and not really working, being scared yeah. to work through it because I felt like it gave me an edge. That's true. So you just brought up a really important point. So with the the top achieving people that I've worked with, over eighty percent of them I have referred off to my kind of stable of phenomenal like network of different psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists to help performers work through their their angst that they have because one of the reasons that they feel like 
they have this edge over others is because of the story that they've attached to this experience of like, well, and they go, but if I give that up, I'm going to lose this edge that I have out there. And I'm like, that's not true. Mm -hmm. You're not going to, because the edge that you have isn't a derivative source energy from this thing. The more you tell yourself that, then, then yes, it's going to be, but it's not because you have it. Like the capability is within you and it's, it doesn't have to be thrust forward because of only rage and anger or whatever it, it it's going to be. Now we're going to put some other driving energy underneath it. That's why I was saying like in the beginning, starting with a negative emotion, isn't a bad thing. It, what matters to me is movement. Movement matters because mm-hmm. movement creates momentum. Momentum creates confidence and confidence creates certainty. And when you have someone who's certain, because now that's a DNA thing, that's not you intellectually thinking about it. That's a, that's just, it's built into the way that you're wired. When you're certain that you're going to make something happen, you are an immovable and unstoppable force. So in the beginning, Rage and anger is fine to use as a focuser of attention. However, we want to replace that then with that intrinsic motivator of, and there are so many intrinsic, there's you know, curiosity, there's exploration, there's growth, there's discovery, there's love, there's creativity. There's so many different types of intrinsic motivators. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think curiosity is one of the ones that's like lost on many people. And it's this, it, when you have a really curious mindset especially with regards to yourself of, you know, I can't wait to see the version of me that shows up. I'm curious to meet the version of me that's going to show up 90 days from now after putting myself through an extraordinarily challenging time, you know, which is maybe training for uh, a triathlon or a marathon or, you know, finally focusing in on a niche, which I've avoided doing forever because I want to serve everybody. I want I can't wait to see as an experiment how my business might look differently how the profits or cash flow in my bank account might look differently if I did an experiment and I was curious about what would happen if I just focused like everyone says you should when you're starting out on you know speaking to to one particular group so we want to change that energy and you know if if we want to you know latch ourselves to the story that all of my current drive and success is coming from that past experience, then it, you'll never, you'll, you're not going to unshock yourself from it because you're going to, you're fearing that you're going to lose your edge. So anyways, I just want to say that because it's funny that you say that because so many athletes would bring that up or if they didn't bring it up, I would just challenge them and say, do you think that by you solving this thing, resolving it for yourself, replacing the current negative emotion that you've got from that experience that you feel is driving you forward is going to cause you to now become an average basketball player or an average football player, tennis player, golfer, you know, executive. Yeah. Uh, Cause the, the longer, again, it's your, you get to live your story as much as you want, but I'm telling you, it doesn't, that can be a chapter that's isolated. It doesn't have to be the through line of your entire book. So speaking of books, let's pivot a little bit and talk about the alter ego effect, because I think, you know, just building on what you just said, you know, the narratives that you have around your experiences are not necessarily that of, you know, the alter ego that you talk about in the book. So first, let's just start off by like just defining, you know, in your words, Todd, what, uh, what an alter ego is, and Mm -hmm. then we can, we can kind of go deeper from there. Sure. So I think a kind of a, a good way to look at it is all of us know that 
the quality of the network that we have around us, like the quality of our friends that we have or connections that we have only increases the likelihood that success is going to happen for us. Makes life way more enjoyable as well. I mean, we all know that you know, when you're one phone call away to help from, you know, calling a friend or someone that can help make something happen for you or make an introduction for you, that's a truly powerful place to be in. So we know that the quality of the people around us is really ha- is, is helpful, that Avenger group that's around us, right? However, there is a space that's even more important for creating trusted friends and allies to help us navigate the challenges of life. And it's between the six inches of our ears. Mm-hmm. And so the term alter ego, I say all that to set this up, the term alter ego, which was coined by Cicero in 44 BC in a letter he wrote to a friend when, and this is Cicero who is arguably and named as either the greatest Roman philosopher of all time, or at least in the top two. And he's at the end of his, um, near the end of his life. And so this is an extraordinarily wise human being sending a message off to a friend. And he talks about the alter ego and how it's really the root of its form means the other I or trusted friend. Okay. And that's a really, really healthy way to sort of look at this idea that we've all played with. The beautiful thing about the book is that everyone gets it because everyone's experienced it. Mm-hmm. Every human being on the planet has used this concept at some point in time in their life. Why? Because it's baked into the human psyche. We use it as children when we're pretending to be our favorite superhero and we're jumping off of a a couch or we're jumping off of something to see how far that we can go, or we're out in the front driveway and we're, you know, donning the kind of mental attitude of our favorite athlete, whether it's Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Larry Bird or Wayne Gretzky or, you know, Mario Lemieux or Sidney Crosby, whoever it might be. And we go out there and it's us asking that question of, you know, what could I do if, you know, how could I play as a hockey player if I wasn't taught anymore and I was now Wayne Gretzky? Like, and it gets us to play in this imaginative sp- state. So the alter ego is simply a, a mental tool that we've got. Mm-hmm. That allows us to disassociate ourselves from our own story and start to play through the idea of someone and something else that we admire, which then pulls with it all of our natural capabilities to go with it. And that's the really, and it's not about us being fake or inauthentic. Yeah. It's, it's actually about us realizing our most real self. Let's go there for a second because that's one of the things that come up. You were uh, in the yeah. clinic. You you know came to Toronto when we were when you were launching the book. We hosted you in the clinic, and mm-hmm. one of the questions was, "Well, is that like faking it? You know, can you speak to the idea? Yeah. Like, does this align with, or is it uh, divorced from the idea of like faking it till you make it? That sort of like, well, I'll just pretend that I'm Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really, f- you know, can you can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. And um, I'll, I'll sort of speak to it with, uh, there was this great study that was done at the University of Minnesota, where they brought in a group of four to six-year-old kids into this classroom. And uh, they wanted to kind of test their level of grit and perseverance. And so they had this sort of model house with all these locks and padlocks all over it. And they gave one group of kids a bunch of keys and key rings to unlock the locks. Another group of kids, they told them uh, and said, pick your favorite superhero and pretend to unlock it as if you're Batman. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they gave another group of young kids 
uh, a, a bunch of superhero costumes. Really, they were Batman costumes or Dora the Explorer costumes, and they put those costumes on, and then they went and did the same task. Fascinating results come from it. The kids who were just like, you know, doing it as themselves would quit on the task far quicker than the other kids. Mm-hmm. But what was really interesting that they didn't expect was seeing the level, seeing the difference in self-talk now from each of the kids. So the kids that were just acting as themselves in their plain clothes would say things like, oh, I'm just not good at puzzles or this isn't working for me. I'm going to quit. Uh, things like that. The group that was acting and pretending to be Batman or Dora the Explorer with just their mind, they stuck with it longer than the other kids. But what was really interesting was the kids that were wearing the uniforms stuck with it far longer than any other ones, but Mm. their self-talk changed to Batman would never quit. So I'm not going to quit door. The Explorer always finds a way. So I'll find a way. Mm. So when you take a look at the differences between them, when you're doing something quote unquote, as yourself, you're the one who's now failing. That's again, this, Human beings were complicated. It would be wonderful if we always believed in ourselves, but I don't live in like a world that we're ascribing. We're almost like ascribing yeah. a story, like it's that schema that's reinforcing yeah. the, the narrative that we already have around. Ourselves. Yeah. So I'm not good at puzzles. I have a puzzle in front of me, so of course I'm going to be shitty at it. Right. And most human beings love to avoid things that they're terrible at. Mm-hmm. So why would I continue doing this? It's only reinforcing the fact that I am terrible at puzzles. Whereas putting on the alter ego and acting through Batman or Dora the Explorer changed their behavior, changed their actions. And at the end of the day, when people are trying to make change happen, what we're ultimately trying to change for ourselves is the actions we're taking because we know that the actions that we take change the results that we're getting. Mm -hmm. And so while everyone else in the kind of self-help and personal world is trying to give you these like wonderful ideas of, you know, it would be lovely if every human being had a tremendous amount of self-worth, but they're empty promises because no one ever gives you the actual tactical way of making it happen, right? And so that's why for me, the alter ego, which is what I'm widely known for in uh, pro sports, Olympic sports, is, is building out custom-built identities to help people win on that field of play because I'm known as a quick hit artist. There are some people who don't want to take on the challenge of someone who's in a major slump right now, I was. I was the. I was the guy. My moniker was always. I want the person who's struggling hard right now. Give me that person. Mm-hmm. Give me the. Give me the super big name athlete that's in a huge slump right now because I can shift them fast. Because the moment you change identity, you change everything else. So yeah, while everyone else is. Yeah. Sorry. Go yeah. on. Yeah. So while everyone else is trying to work with you on habits and behaviors and and things like or even beliefs. Yeah. I'll change the identity and the domino effect of everything else just flows along with it. And, and again, it's built into the way that we operate. It's not, so faking it till you're making it, get back to your original thing. Mm-hmm. I have no real problems with the, with the kind of underlying idea of it at all. It's just the way that, it's the word choices, faking it till you make it. Like A, no human being likes to kind of be perceived as being fake. Right. So, and like I always tell people, that are so worried about being perceived as fake is, you know, it's fake. Fake is you, because this is truly how human beings operate, is you putting your head on the pillow at night and beating yourself up when you didn't say something 
to that person who just talked down to your friend when you were at that networking event Mm -hmm. or had a a snarky or snide comment to you about your profession, you know, like how do you make money from that? Right. And you not sort of honoring your value set and saying, you know, like, Hey, that wasn't like whatever you wanted to say back to them, but you didn't, or you didn't raise your hand and offer your opinion in the meeting or you didn't take actions that day that you knew were going to lead your business forward, or you didn't take the final shot in the game, all because you were concerned and worried about what other people are going to think about you. That is fake. What isn't fake is you knowing that you left everything out there on the field that day. And whether you acted through the idea of you showing up as Superman or Wonder Woman or Black Panther or Wayne Gretzky or Winston Churchill or Ellen DeGeneres or whoever might be your influence, that doesn't matter. You, we're all working with our own internal kind of operating system. And so uh, why, why am I going to care if right now Stephanie is showing up as her inner Larry King right now? That's not you being fake. That's you trying to draw on a resource to help you be the best that you can be in front of that microphone. Mm-hmm. That's not, I'm not going to perceive that as being fake. My only experience of you is the experience I have of you. Right. And I think what you're, what you're referring to is almost the antithesis of the air. You're all, you know, for the times that you didn't speak up, you're like, why didn't I channel my alter ego? Why didn't I have the courage to speak up in those situations? Yeah. So when we're thinking, you know, if people who are listening, they're like, I want to, I want to dive into this and I want to create my own alter ego. Yeah. First, I want to just say that in the, in the book, the frameworks, I mean, it's so obvious that you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. It's not just this, you know, woo-woo, yeah. airy-fairy, although I think there's a place for that. So when we're thinking about curating and developing this alter ego, uh, you make a really important point in the book, and I'd love for you to expand on it. It's answering the question differently between who you are yeah. and what you are. Yeah. So how would how would you answer those two questions differently? Well, a the question who you are it, that that question comes out of the more spiritual traditions, and I am a huge nerd on language and the nuances that we use mm-hmm. as human beings in order to create our worlds because we use language as a way to create our worlds. There's uh, there's a fantastic TED talk on the subject from someone who studies. Uh, the language of the different, the word choices in the different languages around the world and how it impacts the culture itself. So for example, in the German language, there really is no word for or term for spending money. Whereas here, obviously there is an English language. Well, but how does that change anything? Well, Mm -hmm. what it changes is that Germans have a way higher rate of savings than other people. So there's other languages in on the African continent where literally tribes that are next to each other, one has a word for spending and one doesn't. How does that change the tribes? Well, this tribe that doesn't have the word spend in it has kind of a, a, a greater level of sort of financial prosperity than the other one. So words really matter. And, you know, extrapolating this back now, who you are is a question that traps people. Because when you think of who you are, your brain immediately goes to what you've done mm-hmm. and what you are like. You know, it's, it's a past tense question that most people wrap themselves up in. Mm-hmm. And because most people don't have a really healthy sort of way that they look at themselves, uh, they end up sort of traveling down a pathway 
that isn't empowering for them. Whereas shifting the question to what are you, it's now because you know you can kind of most people can maybe get now that I'm very much a meat and potatoes. I want to put stuff on your plate that you can mm-hmm. sink your teeth into. So I like things that are substantive that you can hold that has you know form and shape that you can put in your hand. You know, who you are is like you know the equivalent of me having this water pass right through my hands, not having a cup to hold in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas what are you? Now I have a cup. Now I've got, and you're going to go to, okay, what am I? Hmm. What am I? Well, I am someone that blah. I am like, so what are you is a more powerful question because then we can get into things like, well, what you are is you're someone that is gifted with the greatest superpower on the planet, which is the creative imagination. That's what I talk about in the book, and I've said this many times. And it's not to—it's not to push the idea of love or gratitude and affection to the side, because of course those are powerful. But they're not what make us unique on the planet. What makes us unique, human beings unique on the planet, is our creative imagination, our ability to create new stories about what we're capable of. We can shift and we can change in an instant. And our creative imagination then is the really powerful thing that we can tap into to help us overcome new obstacles, overcome challenging situations that we might be in so that we can suspend disbeliefs about what we think we can and cannot do. And we can act through a new identity to help us navigate that with more great, more grace, more great, more, uh, more grit, more grace and more playfulness. So, which we do um, as kids, right? Like I remember as a kid, like lifting my sword up and then I wasn't a Dora anymore. I was She-Ra or Mm -hmm. I'd I'd spin around and then I was Wonder Woman. And I really believed that I was strong enough to be able to defend Grayskull. And I, I, I I would be able to tap into that. I think as we, you know, we age it's the thing of adulthood where we're like, okay, this is uh, the rackets and the filters and the, whatever we think adulthood yeah. is, we, we lose that ability. So I think well, what you're talking about is just removing the layers and getting the back layers. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I talk about in chapter three of the book is just that I call it, you know, the field to play model or really the identity model mm-hmm. and, and how all these layers are, are gone. But there's also just the natural, you know, evolution of our growing brain as we develop too. So we, we operate from the ages of six months or really a year to seven years of age, truly in the theta brainwave state. And the theta brainwave state is like zone and flow state where we are really engrossed in creative play and imagination. We think about, you know, as we've developed over all of our years, that age gap of one to seven is our greatest growth period that we ever have. And then what happens is our frontal lobe starts to develop. You kind of talk, you talked about the frontal lobe before. So our frontal lobe starts to develop. That's where reasoning, yep. judgment, higher thinking skills start to develop. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's so funny. I was talking to my, I've got three little ones and uh, my older, my older daughter, who's six and a half had just said recently that, oh, I, I can't wait. And it was the first time she said the words, I can't wait uh, and followed up with like some older age. Thing, thinking right? about and I was, the future that's frontal lobe yeah. right there yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, and I mean I know that it's going to happen mm-hmm. and uh, and so then we start to look at what a 10 year old is doing and then a 12 year old 14 16 18 year old and adults and we we're like oh adults they seem a little more serious they take things and so they think that they need to grow into that that that's now the next stage mm-hmm. and so we start to sort of operate to and through and towards these paradigms that actually end up trapping us in many ways and I say all that because we then shudder 
and we stop using this creative imagination or we stop using this idea of playing with other identities like we did when we were kids in order to discover what we can do. And we think, oh, well, that's childish. That's something that you do when you're a little kid. When you're an adult, you don't do that, right? And I'm challenging everyone, anyone who's listening right now because if you're thinking that way, then you're simply trapping yourself under a paradigm that is not true. So whether or not you want to use an alter ego or whether or not you want to be able to like shape shift and use identities to help you um, transform into a more powerful version of whatever role that you might be challenged with, it's your call. Because whether you like it or not, it's, it's in your mind. It's in your brain. It's built into it. So whether or not you want to open the door and let it out or whether you don't want to let it, it's your choice, but it's there waiting for you. And so I'm just challenging the listener who might be like, oh, well, I don't want to be, again, that's you getting trapped by tribal narratives, which is, again, one of the, we talked about forces earlier, one of the other hidden forces and sinister forces is us acting to and through what we think it means to be an Asian, what we think it means to be a black person, what we think it means to be a Christian, a Catholic, a Canadian, an American, right? These are all tribal narratives that we then don and we start to act to and through. And, you know, it's only not working for you if you feel trapped by it. Right. So if it's if saying things like, well, no one in my family has ever been an entrepreneur, that's you acting through a tribal narrative that is not true. It's true for you, but it's not a truth. It's not a universal truth. So by you staying tapped into this creative imagination, this beautiful gift that we have, you're able to navigate life and pursue things and conquer them far more quickly than other people. And what's most important about this, which I always want to hammer home with people is, I mean, how? There's challenges that come at you all the time in life, and it never hurts to add a little bit more playfulness to it whatsoever. And, I added this and, unicorn right before we started. For those of you that are listening, <laughs> this is a video podcast, but there's a unicorn here just to, uh, to honor that idea. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I had, I mean, everyone now knows that you know, I have non-prescription glasses, and I've worn them since I was 21, 22. Now I just do it as like a fashion thing. Mm-hmm. But for me, in the very beginning, that was me to step into my, my alter ego of super richer, just like you know, Clark Kent would put on those glasses so that he could be accepted by society and be mild-mannered version of himself. The real hero, though, was Superman. It was, our, it was there underneath this kind of cloak. And, um, and that's always been kind of my message to people is I think there's a lot of people walking around as Clark Kent's and they're shielding the real super version of themselves because they want to be accepted. They want to, be, they, want to fit, they want to fit in. And yet it's the desire to want to fit in that is actually trapping and stopping many people from going and pursuing the things that they want to do. You know, I'm known as X, but really I want to be an artist, you know, or everyone knows me as this, but I know that that's not me. That was something that happened to me when I was a kid. And I started acting through that behavior for a long time. And now everyone thinks that I'm this like, you know, person who can do everything for everybody, but I'm actually more like this. So, you know, that's where shape-shifting using an alter ego as a mechanism to help draw this other quality out of you can help reveal more of what you are. And so if we want to activate Superman, if we want to draw on Wonder Woman, what are some of the ways that you, Yeah. Uh, what are some of the ways that we activate that process? So if you've defined all the things that we want, all the things that we don't want, we have the want and the, the don't want list. We have yeah. the qualities that we want to be exhibiting. We have the what, what, how do we uh, show up and activate the alter ego? Is sure. Like so the, the first thing, like, t- yeah, let's yeah. dive into that. Yeah. The first place you start is always like, we always, uh, we always, first start with the role that you most want to, 
you know, show up in a different way with, because we have many selves. There is no one you, you can't look under a microscope and find you. There's a body that encompasses many versions of, a, of, of your personality that gets brought out, whether you're a, uh, a mother, a father, whether you're an athlete, whether you're um, an entrepreneur, whether you're the sales role that you have inside your business, or, you know, the creative self that shows up when you're painting or writing or, you know, doing whatever. So there's many roles that we have. So we always, you know, develop this sort of super identity, this alter ego in context to a specific role. And then we go to, okay, so what is it about that role right now that I'm most frustrated with that I'm not showing up as, or I'm not bringing to the table? And, and then we can flip that then and we go to, okay, now what, what are the qualities that I want to be bringing to that? Like, how do I want to be showing up? If you use myself as the example, when I was starting out in business, super insecure, super indecisive, wasn't making a decision at all. And I lacked the confidence to really get the message that I had out there about, you know, the powerful way to develop athletes because I was so insecure about how young I looked, you know, how could someone who's 21 or 22, um, go and stand on a stage. I looked like I was 12 years old and, you know, I need to have four degrees and I need to have 25 years under my belt before I got like all these like really silly, um, rules that I was making up in my head about, you know, when I would be able to now go out and talk. So that wasn't serving me. I wanted to, you know, sort of disassociate from that sort of negative rule set that I had for myself. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, what, what could I be acting through? This is kind of getting to that next phase of what are the qualities that I want? Well, I, it's basically the opposite. I don't want to be, so if I don't want to be indecisive, I want to be decisive. If I don't want to be insecure, I want to be confident and I want it to be, so I want to be confident. I want to be decisive and I want it to be articulate. I wanted to be able to say my message in a powerful way that resonated with people and cut through the kind of noise that, and distraction that many other people were being kind of delivered with. And then I go, okay, well, who embodied those traits of confident decisiveness and, you know, articulate. And for me, it was Benjamin Franklin, um, Joseph Campbell, who wrote the hero of a thousand faces. It was a big hero of mine and, and Superman as like the man of action. I mean, that's literally, you know, beside man of steel, it was man of action. He's the one who took action. So that's who I was embodying. I was kind of creating this composite alter ego for myself that I was truly going to honor their qualities and traits as one. I wasn't pretending to be Superman. I wasn't pretending to be Joseph, second-rate version of Joseph Campbell. I wasn't pretending to be a second-rate version of Benjamin Franklin. I was looking at their traits and their qualities that would allow them to go and be the persons that they were. And, and that's important because and there's a reason at- why you're attracted to them too. It's not just like a random, you know, you're no. thinking about these people and the characteristics that they exhibit. And there's a reason why, you know, even when we watch movies where we feel emotionally engaged with the person yeah. because it's reflecting something that's already in us. There's something that you're seeing in them yeah. that's in you. Yeah. There's a reflection that's happening. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's where that's that kind of resonant sort of, umbilical cord that I'm looking for with people because I've had people who've picked an alter ego because it sounded like a nice idea, but they didn't actually connect with that person. There wasn't like an emotional tug and I need that emotional tug. And when I'm working with someone and you need it when you're building out this identity, because at the end of the day, when you think about, you know, being thought or idea being turned into action, well, we're a triune being meaning that there's three real levels to us. There's the, there's the thinking self, there's that emotional self, and then there's that acting and physical self. 
Well, there's a lot of people when you're judging yourself, you're judging yourself based on the fact that you didn't go and do something. So there was a physical thing that you didn't go do and you had behavior that you didn't go and do, despite the fact that you knew that you wanted to do it. So you had the idea, you just didn't take the action. Well, what's going on there? Well, the thought didn't walk across the bridge of emotion to get to the physical action. Right. And so think of it like there's a drawbridge in, the, you know, in our mind where mm-hmm. my athletes have this idea or my executives that I work with have this idea. The entrepreneurs I work with have this idea of how they want to show up, have this idea of what their business might want to look like. Mm-hmm. It's not happening. So I'm trying to, f- how can I lower that drawbridge of emotion so that that idea can now get out there more seamlessly onto the field of play. And I need that person now to emotionally connect with that identity that's going to help make that happen. So, you know, uh, just because, you know, Oprah Winfrey and the public narrative around her is that she is a woman of action. If you don't connect with Oprah, then don't use Oprah. Right. But if you connect with someone else, that like, isn't like even grandma. a big name. Yeah, yeah, like your grandma. Like I've said before, that grandmas are the number one source of alter egos for people, mm-hmm. which shocks people. You know, if there was a category of them, grandmothers, you know, sort of hold the mantle of being the most popular ones. Why? Because you're emotionally connected to it. So don't try to like force fit it, you know, because someone could look at it. And again, you're not building alter ego to explain it to someone else anyway. It's for you. So if you're inspired by some random character that had, was in two pages of a book, but there's just something about that character that you loved, then that's what you go with. Or like Ziva David is, a, uh, is one that has come up quite a bit, who's on the, the television show NCIS, and she's a former Mossad character, like badass woman. And there's a lot of people that I've worked with. Some of it's because I live in the New York area here. I've worked with a lot of Jewish people. She's a, uh, a Jewish woman. And so that's, they want her sort of, you know, woman of action type of thing. Mm-hmm. So getting to your whole question, now we're looking for so those qualities, those traits that we have, who already has them. Now you've, got, now you've kind of found that, that form in your mind of you know, who you're resonating with. And then that next phase is A, giving it a name because name gives things form and substance. Mm-hmm. Don't act. Don't, I mean, people go, do you have to? Well, you don't have to, but if you want to make it really good, then yeah, give it a name because the moment you give something a name, now you can talk to it. Now you can work with it. Is that the same for your enemy too? Would you give your, yeah. like some of the hidden forces and the trauma and like the, you know, the inner critic, not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, yeah. worthy enough. Like, would you give that a name as well? Exactly. Like inner critic. You inner know, critic. Yeah. It, yeah. Inner critic is an example of like, so what does that even mean though? Right. So everyone's heard it before, but what if I called the, what if the inner critic's name was now Frank? Now, now Frank starts to have this. Now it's not just this amorphous idea called inner critic that I can't hold, grab, touch, you know, and deal with. But mm-hmm. Frank, I can tell Frank to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell, or I can treat it like it's, you know, cause Frank's really just a scared little kid. Yeah. You know, and say like, Frank, I get it, man. Like yeah. we're going to go out there and we're going to do this. And Hey, I might fall on my face, but you know what I'm going to have is I'm going to have an answer. And that answer is going to give me more value in life. And that value in life is going to be like another little brick that I get to stand on top of. That's going to, you know, allow me to ascend higher and higher up the stairs so that, you know, whether or not I reach, you know, the end of the hero's journey or not, I can tell other people about the experience, which is going to be more valuable. So don't worry about it. Like, I mean, and we got this, like, I mean, who cares if we right. send out a marketing campaign and, and no one buys, whatever, there's going to be more marketing campaigns. 
And trust me, no one's really even paying attention to what we're doing anyway. No one's, everyone's got their own issues. So there's, there's different ways that you can, you can use this, but Which yeah. Is brilliant by the way, because that really reduces resistance because Frank or Sally or whoever yeah. it is, like they're just buck bucking all the time. But if you say, I hear you, I understand you, yeah. but I'm going to go and do it anyway. And we're going to be okay. I think that yeah. that really reduces that resistance to take the next step forward. And again, some of this is like new to people. Uh, it's not lost on me that people go, oh, I'm going to talk to myself that way. You're already doing it. You just did it to yourself when you just said, I'm going to talk to myself that way. You're already doing it. We're just creating this beautiful duality inside of our own minds. Mm-hmm. Most people live inside of a singularity. Just it's a, it's a merry-go-round effect of conversation that goes around and around in their own heads with nowhere to go. Whereas I want to create a tennis match because we live in a world of ups, downs, inside, outsides, hot, cold, you know, dark, light, all that stuff. So why not do the exact same thing inside of our mental landscape of there is an enemy over here that wants to pull us into the shadows. And there's this hero over here that wants to pull us into the light, that wants to pull us out onto the field, wants to actualize ourselves. And so when that resistance starts to catch in, you just say, hey, Frank, enough. Like we got this. I mean, I'm 43 years old. I've done this enough times. I've skinned my knees enough times. Here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to get ostracized by the tribe. I'm not going to get kicked out or whatever. Like just back off, get to the sidelines. Mm -hmm. It's a really powerful narrative that happens or conversation that happens on the field of play of sport where, you know, you've got someone who might have this, you know, little sort of behavioral defect that they've kind of always stops them from performing to their best. But now when they've named the enemy, they can detect it and go, listen, you know, I get that you feel bad that I'm beating that other person across the, the, the court for me, but you need to step to the sidelines because that person needs to learn the lesson of what it really takes to beat me. Because I'm not going to make, I don't know how long they've practiced for. I don't know if they put five hours of practice time in every single day just to get my serve right. I can't help it that they can't return my serve. And I'm not going to make them, I'm not going to feel bad for them. They need to get a fully and complete lesson of what it's like to truly be elite like I am. So step to the sidelines. I'll meet you in the locker room later where being fair and nice to other people is a great way to operate in society. But on this court, fair and nice doesn't play which is exactly a conversation that one of my athletes has. It's in the book. Now, I love that conversation. Yeah. And it, the game, like she would throw the tennis game because she was like, this isn't fair for me to beat them by this much. Exactly. And yeah. so, and again, like I said before, momentum in sport is everything. Momentum in business is everything. So you don't want to give your, you know, that, that competitor on the other side, um, that momentum. So we've got the name of it. And then we look for maybe some sort of um, artifact, which is yeah. a talisman, a totem, a, a physical object that we uh-huh. can use to activate um, that. So like I said, I mean, I have, you know, non-prescription glasses that I wear, you know, or that I used to wear in order to activate that super Richard version of myself. And for me, it was always like when you put those, when I put that item on, that's truly when Superman is leaving this, the, the phone booth. It was him putting on that costume. This, these glasses aren't just uh, to other people. They look like a pair of glasses, not to me. The, the spirit of Joseph Campbell was in here. The spirit of Superman was in here. Benjamin Franklin, they lived in here. And before I put that on, you know, I needed to make sure that I was in that emotionally resonant state where I was going to truly activate those qualities and honor the memory of those people. I wasn't just doing it as a little device to try to trick myself. No, this is, again, I'm trying to just use the powers that we're gifted with 
to truly transform into some a powerful version of myself that's custom built to help me go and succeed on whatever that field is. Because again, it wasn't about me. This is this isn't about me doing this in order to um, uh, trick or deceive other people. That's being fake. This was about me truly wanting to um, act up to the capabilities that I had um, and the aspirational levels that I had and ensure that I wasn't going to get in my own way. Whatever narrative that I had around myself was not going to get in my own way. And I was going to build a different story about, you know, who and what was going to be showing up there. So we use, you know, glasses or whether it's bracelets or whether it's earrings or whether it's like whatever the device is, could be a necklace, could be socks, could be a belt, could be any one of a number of things. People have pebbles that they that they use that they put inside their pocket to activate something. Could be a special pen that you might use. Could be even the chair that you're sitting in that, you know, I've got writers that I've worked with where literally it's like they, they pause for a moment and they might have like a sweater hanging off the back um, of it. And before they sit down, they truly honor that sort of space. And when they sit down, they're sitting down with intention as to what is going to show up. And then they might put on the sweater or whatever. Um, maybe it could be just the chair. It could be the field itself, like stepping out there and, and that alter ego, like I talk about in the very you know chapter one of the book of Bo Jackson's alter ego, where his lived on the field. And the moment he stepped on the field, that's when it activated. Or, right. you know, I live here in New York City, so I've worked with a lot of people that are in the entertainment world or on Broadway, and it's the stage itself, or it's the walk through the doorway out of their dressing room that phew, that's when they it's almost like walking through a force field and um they kind of meet this other identity in the sort of confines of that doorway that's just again our imagination is just so limitless and we can use it to truly empower ourselves i think it's important to note too because i made this mistake before reading your book i had a chain that had you know the wonder woman emblem on it and i would wear it all the time so i would wear it to work out yeah. i would wear it every day on calls like this i would sleep yeah. with it and bef- that was before the book and then after the book i really understood the idea of really limiting that channeling or limiting mm-hmm. that activation to the field of play in which you're hoping to channel those qualities yeah um, so i actually changed it because you know these nails i can't get my necklace on and off really i need someone to help me with it so i actually yeah. changed it to a ring mm-hmm. so i can kind of feel the ring i can take it off as soon as i feel like i'm not channeling yeah, Wonder Woman up. anymore. So I'm yeah. like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna try this again and we'll put it back yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean and and what what's key there and, and you've picked up on the language is just about that idea of like truly honoring the inspiration for the traits that you want. Maybe before we as we kind of wrap up, I'll share the kind of the mental movie theater. It's one of the things that I train people on around, you know, just navigating our own skills that we've got nested inside of our mind is creating this movie theater that you can go into in order to see yourself doing things, practice things, you know, really prepare yourself mentally for stuff. And when I was playing uh, this, when I was in high school, and then of course, when I went to college as well, but I would had had this sort of mental game ritual where when I was sitting down, getting ready um, for the game, I went into this movie theater in my mind and uh, I'd walk in the door and uh, there were two doorways at the end of the room on the other end. And uh, when I got inside, then the other doors would open. And in from the right-hand side would walk a uh, tribe of five Native American warriors walking towards me, uh, led by Geronimo. Um, I'm a huge Native American buff. Where I grew up, 
uh, in Southern Alberta. It's really rich in Native American history. And our family farm has lots of fire rings on it. And, you know, I'd go around as a kid hunting for like arrowheads and stuff. Uh, and I'm just, just fascinated and in love with that culture. And then uh, through the left-hand side would be my two heroes in football, Ronnie Lott and Walter Payton. And they'd walk towards me and drawn would be holding five trading cards. And as they walked towards me, uh, Walter would say to me, now Todd, take each of these cards as a representation of each of us. And this is when Geronimo would reach out his hand and I would go in and I would grab them. And just as he would, just as I would do that, Geronimo would kind of tug them away a little bit. And that's when Walter would say, but don't you for one second dishonor our memory and the way that we would show up by not you activating what our traits and qualities are out on that field to play or on your football or on the football mm-hmm. field. Mm-hmm. And then I'd kind of nod my head and then I would take them sitting next to me though, because again, this is the power of environment and totems. I had the five trading cards and there were three of Walter Payton and two of Ronnie Lott. And I would take one of Walter's and put it in my helmet because I wanted to think like him out there. Uh, his other two I'd put inside my thigh pads because I wanted to run like him. The other the, the two from Ronnie, I would stuff in one shoulder pad and the other in the other shoulder pad. And then when I put on my helmet and the moment I snapped my chin strap, that's when I would take on the spirit and the you know emotion of the uh, Native American tribe. And my my name for my all three was Geronimo. And it was kind of composite of all of them. But and then I just say to myself, Geronimo, here we go. And 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 so Todd didn't go and play. The body did, but Geronimo went and played on that field. Right. And so that's why I say, like, I was never a physically gifted person, but I played way bigger. But that's because I didn't play. I went out with there. There's a bunch of us that were playing, and no one else knew that um, yeah. except for me. So that was kind of just that was that was an example of my ritual that I would go through, and uh, to help me just play it at a little level that I probably didn't deserve to play at. <laughs> I think you know at the core of this book, you know, the hypothesis that you put forward around, you know, switching or inverting, you know, who the hero is and who the, you know, alter ego is and just giving us permission to, you know, to use your words, to suspend the disbelief, to put just Mm -hmm. enough room between your baggage, you know, your story and the things that you want to show up and perform for are brilliant. And I think it's such a seminal piece of work. I think everybody uh, should pick up a copy. Um, if there's, if people want to find you, uh, if they want to, you know, work with you, I know you have an event coming yeah. up in, in September, and you're going to be speaking um, at Archangel in October. You want to just plug that stuff, uh, so if people want to find you. Yeah, there. I mean, ToddHerman.me is the place to find me, um, and there's links to across all the. You know, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. That's where we do a lot of like more behind the scenes stuff. But yeah, I've got a, an event that's coming up in. Um, end of September, beginning of October in San Diego called Performance Con. It's really you know, geared towards uh, business owners, but we talk about kind of the mindset and leadership side of things on day one. Day two, I talk about the strategy and execution uh, or strategy and um, tactics of you know, building the business. And then day three is all about the, um, the systems and execution that you need. And I have all these amazing guest speakers that are coming in. And of course, I'm coming to Archangel to drop some you know, alter ego stuff on people. But uh, yeah, I mean, people can find me at uh, ToddHerman.me and we've got lots of stuff to help people uh, navigate the six inches between their ears and help them get out of the field to play. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for carving out some time today. Thanks, Steph. (music) 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W.co. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social, on Twitter, it's Dr. underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Dr. Stephanie Estima. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E. E-S-T-I-M-A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.